Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Did you know that Rocky Road ice cream originated in Oakland? Or that Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera were once married in San Francisco City Hall? Maybe you've wondered about Sutro Tower or Redwoods or the architecture of Chinatown. Well, today, we're joined by Olivia Allen Price, host of KQED's Bay Curious podcast, to celebrate the publication of a book anthologizing the show's reporting, forgotten histories, legendary locals, and the many quirks and oddities that make the Bay Area what it is. We'll talk about the podcast, the book, and we're going to try a little something special in the Bay Curious tradition, a little game of trivia. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've got a KQED crossover in store for you this morning. One of my absolute favorite media artifacts of any kind is our podcast, Bay Curious, which takes the Bay Area's culture and history and natural setting as a kind of wonderland to explore with curiosity and with verve. Olivia Allen Price hosts the show with such energy and intelligence, investigating questions asked by local residents about things both profound and peculiar peculiar that make the Bay Area unique. And she joins us here in the studio to celebrate the publication of the Bay Curious book, full title, Bay Curious, Exploring the Hidden True Stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome. Hey, Alexis. Yeah, thanks for having me. So how'd you get started making Bay Curious? I came to KQED as a engagement producer at, uh, at yeah here at KQED, and at the time, a lot of what we were focused on is how can we get conversations going with our audience. A back and forth uh, was kind of the goal. We really wanted our our audience to be a part of our journalism. But a lot of what I was doing at the time was uh, what really kind of still felt like broadcasting. It was uh, putting things up on social media. And if you've spent much time on, on Facebook or Twitter or other social media platforms, you know that's not always a great place to have conversation and to get conversations going and have them mm-hmm. be quality conversations. So I was feeling like I was kind of missing the mark on this engagement part of of my job. At the same time, I was looking at this project out in uh, Chicago at mm-hmm. WBEZ, and they were had a pretty simple you know formula. They were inviting their audience to ask a question, and then they would answer that question in you know kind of a fun and delightful way in this regular p- program. And I was super inspired by that, and was like, oh darn, I wish I had thought of that. They were having just a lot of success and, and writing some really fascinating mm. stories. And 
Jen Brandel, the woman who who came up with that project, came out to KQED and actually said, hey, I am trying to get more newsrooms to try this formula. Would you guys give it a go? And we said, <laughs> yes, we would. We would love to do that. So that's kind of how we got started. Um, and the kind of one thing led to another. And, and now we're a podcast seven years in the making. <laughs> so for those who don't know about Big Curious already, tell us about how the show actually works kind of on like an episode to episode basis. Yeah, so we're a question and answer format show. So people can log on to baycurious.org and there is a big box at the top that invites you to ask a question about the Bay Area's people or culture or food. And what we do is as those questions come in, we're kind of screening them all the time. And the ones that seem super interesting, we'll go ahead and assign a reporter to. And then some that also seem interesting, we'll put into a voting round where the public is invited to help us decide what we should cover Uh, That voting round is also at baycurious.org. And um, so what we do is, yeah, we take those those questions, we answer them as much as possible. We try to bring the person who asked the question along for the ride. So we're really trying to have the public be a part of our journalism at every step of the way, from the assigning of the story to the the pitching of the story and ultimately the reporting of, of the story. So cool. And one of the things you guys have done in live events in particular is you've done these trivia nights here uh, at the station. So we wanted to sort of take a page from this book and do one of these trivia nights. So for you adventurous listeners out there who think you know the Bay Area very well, this is your chance to call in. You can win a copy of the book if you can correctly answer just three trivia questions. I have to tell you, they're pretty hard, but I'm sure you can do it. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email uh, your questions about the Bay Area to Olivia Allen Price, host of KQED's Bay Curious at forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, we're KQED Forum. Again, you can call in to take a short trivia test, 866-733-6786. So tell us a little bit more about how you go about investigating each of these questions. Is it just like, you know, standard journalism or what do you think? Yeah, I don't think it varies too much from standard journalism. Um, You know, how we report each question varies a lot based off the question. We definitely think of ourselves as an explainer show, uh, first and foremost. But a lot of our stories, to really get into you know, the full breadth of the story, we end up looking back to history, right? Because history is so much of the context that that anything is is set in. So we've had a lot of, you know, partnerships with local historical societies. They're an amazing resource. There's one for, it feels like practically every city and town in the Bay Area. Um, and they're always super helpful, connecting us with primary source documents and, and photos. If you don't know, you know, your local history room or history society, definitely you should, you should check it out. We also do a lot of stories about science, science topics, and just the general expertise among faculty at all the many colleges and universities here is such a resource and just such a tr- tremendous gift that we have here in the Bay Area that I think it's hard to replicate in most other cities. I mean, even given all that, uh, are there questions that listeners have called in or you know written in and been like, we really want to know this, that you just hit a dead end? 
It burns me to say yes. Uh, <laughs> so actually, our very first story out of the gate, you know, we were very excited to, to be launching Bay Curious. We're answering our first audience question. We're all gung-ho. And the question we chose was about a car wreck that is on a hiking trail up on Mount Tamalpais in Marin. And if you've been if you've been hiking on this trail, I think it was called the Coastal Trail. I think it's been renamed a different trail name now, but you're hiking along this trail, beautiful big views of the Pacific Ocean and you come across this old car wreck that looks like it's from the 1930s, 1940s, and you actually have to divert around the wreck to continue on the trail. So it's a very noticeable car wreck. We took this question on thinking like, oh, there's police records. We can look up the VIN number. This should be a slam dunk to find out what happened with this car. Well, we learned a lot of things like cars of that age don't have VIN numbers. Uh, you know, there weren't police records that we could find about what may have happened to this car. Most likely it was a junker car that somebody kind of, you know, put a brick on on the uh, gas pedal and sent over the edge of the cliff and kind of let tumble down, um, you know, the, the ravine there. But we were never able to find out for sure. So it felt like right out of the gate, we were promising people we would answer their questions and we kind of missed. And that really taught me before we take a question on now, just like make sure we can probably find an answer. I have to say, figuring out you could identify one random car from any time in history seems like that's not actually a slam dunk first one. That seems pretty impossible, actually. Um, so tell me about what's actually in the book. Like, you know, you've been making this entire media entity. Why did it up kind of between the covers? So the book is a collection of 49 short stories, and a lot of them are based off things that we've covered on the podcast. It's kind of a best of the podcast, but we also have a bunch of new stories that we created just for the book. There's also a dozen or so sidebars, and the stories kind of cover a range of things that you know have to do with Bay Area people, culture, places, food, nature. You know, It really is sort of a, a grab bag of fascinating things that we think you should know about this region. That you that you live in all right i think we're gonna take our first trivia call let me get to our trivia questions here all right first up jefferson in sausalito welcome to the show thank you alexis um jefferson are you ready ready listo <laughs> all right let's do it here you go olivia all right, Jefferson, what chocolate company started up in San Francisco in 1852 and is now the longest continuously operated chocolate maker in the country? Ghirardelli, whose aroma filled my senses when I walked to grammar school. <laughs> that is correct. Well done. Put one, one point on the board. All right, question two. Name the internationally acclaimed poet who both worked as a Muni streetcar conductor and recited their work at a presidential inauguration. Wow. A Muni streetcar conductor and a poet who recited at a presidential inauguration. E.E. Mm. E. Cummings on Little Cat Feet. Ooh, not quite. Alexis, do you want to give the answer? <laughs> yeah, I will. Maya Angelou. Amazing, amazing stories about her being a Muni streetcar conductor and the ILWU providing, like, the muscle to make sure that, you know, she wasn't mess- It's There's great stories about that. All right. We'll move into question number three. What is the official color of the Golden Gate Bridge? The official color of the Golden Gate Bridge. 
I told you these were tough. They're tough. Oh, um, let's see. 1936 Rust-Oleum. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite. That would be International Orange. Uh, Jefferson, oh, thank you that. for playing. Uh, Alexis, how did he do? Yeah. One for three, Jefferson. Stay on the line, though. You got to stay on the line. You may get a book anyway. I'm going to say that. Uh, thank you so much for calling. Thank you so much for, for listening. Can you tell us a little bit about the story of International Orange? Uh, I can tell you a little about the story. So the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, as they were kind of you know building it, there was a primer that was put on the bridge before they were going to paint it. The plan had initially been to paint it you know, gray, uh, a, a pretty standard color of bridges of bridges at the time. And one of the designers for the bridge saw this this bright orange primer on on the bridge and was like, "Wow, that looks really nice against the green hills of of Marin and of course of the of the Presidio on the other end." And ultimately was able to, to sort of talk colleagues into, "Hey, let's actually keep this bridge this bright color. So they found a paint color that was really similar. It ended up being called, called International Orange. And that is the color that is on our bridge today and, and really is what makes it so remarkable because, you know, aside from the color, you know, there's actually not that that's that remarkable about the Golden Gate Bridge from an engineering standpoint. I've often been told that the Bay Bridge is, from an engineering standpoint, a much more marvelous bridge. Uh, but that color, you know, you, you can't forget it. I mean, the Bay Area practically would not be the Bay Area without that color. You know, it's amazing to think that that was just like, you know, just one decision that was made and another one could have been made. It could have been gray like every other bridge. We're talking about the publication of the Bay Curious book. Full title is Bay Curious Exploring the Hidden True Stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. We are joined by Olivia Allen Price, the host of KQED's Bay Curious. And we are playing some trivia with all of you it's tough. Jefferson, good try on the first one. We'll take some more calls after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the publication of such a fun, beautiful book. It is the Bay Curious book. It's called Bay Curious, exploring the hidden true stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. 
It's a book kind of condensing a lot of the learning from KQED's podcast, Bay Curious. We're joined by the host of the podcast, Olivia Allen Price. Uh, We would love to hear from you. We have a bunch of callers on the line who want to play trivia, which we're going to do. A reminder, it's tough. Um, If you want to write in um, to forum at kqed.org or, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we do have a couple other uh, questions for you. One is, what's something you're curious about the Bay Area? I bet Olivia has already solved it. Or, you know, what's something you know that you think should be a Bay Curious episode? Maybe something only you know. You can, you can uh, email again, forum at kqed.org. You can find us on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. Let's play one more round of trivia before we get to the White Horse Inn, which we're going to talk about. Uh, Nisha in San Francisco, welcome to the show. Yeah, hello. All right, Nisha, are you ready to play? Yes, I'm very excited to play. (laughs) (laughs) And you are, um, okay, let's take it away, Olivia. All right, Nisha. Statistically, what is the hottest month of the year in San Francisco? Um, September. Oh, nailed it. You got nailed it. it. So All it right. is September. <laughs> Off to a strong start. Off Possibly strong... the only hot month of the year. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Question number two. What is the average speed of one of San Francisco's cable cars? And we have made this multiple choice. Is it A, 15.5 miles per hour? B, 22.5 miles per hour? C, 9.5 miles per hour? Or D, 5.5 miles per hour? Uh, 9.5. Wow. Yes, two for two, Nisha. Nisha, I'm very impressed. <laughs> All right, question three. The Rainbow Tunnel on Highway 101, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge, was officially renamed to honor this comedic actor in 2015. Uh, Robin Williams. Oh, three for three, Nisha. <laughs> Our first winner. Our first winner. Excellent job, Nisha. Are you um, are you like a lifelong resident? Are you a trivia hound? What's the? Uh, how are you so good at this? Uh, well, no, I mean I'm a Bay Area lifelong resident, but I guess I just happen to know random trivia. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you can play on our trivia team anytime you yes. want. Thank you uh, so much, Nisha, for the for the call. Um, let's talk about Olivia. Another um, story that's in the book. This is actually right near my house, so I'm it, it's cl- near and dear to me. The White Horse. Yeah, the White Horse Inn. It's probably the oldest gay and lesbian bar in the United States, and I say probably because there's a couple of contenders for this title, and the origins of a lot of these bars are pretty murky because mm-hmm. a lot of them started before, uh, you know, or during the Prohibition era. So were they open? Were they not open? Tea, you know, we're not really sure. Um, and also because, you know, homosexuality was not legal uh, for a time in American history. So if these places were friendly to the queer community, it was not advertised in the mainstream. It was not something that may have been talked about or written down in newspapers or other primary source documents that we're looking at. But the White Horse does allege that they are the oldest continuously running gay and lesbian bar in the United States. Um, And it's, you know, Still remains a wonderful place today um, that, you know, people can kind of go and, and find a great community. I love one particular show there, the uh, Rebel Kings of Oakland. Mm-hmm. They're, they're a drag king group. We actually had one of their performers, Vera, came and performed at our book launch here last Tuesday. 
And if you're looking for it now, it's not hard to spot because it's right there on Telegraph. And there's a big rainbow sidewalk painted right outside yeah. so you can, you can find it. Um, let's talk about another, you know, this is kind of, a, kind of one of the areas that's of difficult history um, here in the Bay Area. And it's a, a place called Port Chicago. Yeah. During World War II, the entire military was segregated, and that included the Navy. And black sailors were usually given one of two jobs. They were asked to cook for usually white servicemen, or they would be tasked with loading and unloading cargo. Um, Locally, it was from ships. And a lot of times that cargo was ammunition, bombs, warheads, other very dangerous things to be handling. And to be doing this, they were given very little training, almost zero training, actually. And so this was happening out at Port Chicago, which was a munitions depot east of Martinez here in the Bay Area. And in July of 1944, there was a massive disaster. Two large explosions ripped through Port Chicago. They actually registered as a 3.4 on the Richter scale, which oh is what gosh. we use to yeah. measure um, you know, earthquakes at the time. And shaking was felt throughout the Bay Area. Now, 320 people were killed in these explosions, and 202 of them were black soldiers who had been, you know, loading this mm-hmm. ammunition. Um, what caused the explosions have, has never fully been determined because so much was destroyed. Um, but, you know, it's, it's believed that probably there was a loading mechanism that may have failed and mm-hmm. dropped a bomb actually on a ship that was already loaded with, oh, with a bunch of explosives. Now, after this disaster, black sailors were told to clean up the mess, and that included, you know, the bodies of, of their friends and comrades, mm-hmm. while white officers were given time off to grieve. When the black soldiers were or sailors were asked to, you know, start working soon after at, at another nearby facility doing the same work in the same conditions without any kind of additional training, 50 of them refused. Um, mm-hmm. And they were ultimately put on a mutiny trial that attracted a lot of national and, and even international attention. And, you know, I'm going to skip over some details here, but it's all in the book. But ultimately, sort of all the attention that was on this group of people during this time helped to really really just like push the ball forward in desegregating the entire military. We're talking like third grade. Marshall got involved, yeah. uh, you know, FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt got involved, all those things. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, a lot of those same black sailors also after the fact were not really supported, right? They still had that. It's not like they uh, that that the charges were expunged or they were exonerated, right? Right. They still had to deal with that. Yeah, they spent many years in military prison um, and then, you know, for the rest of their lives were dealing with this mutiny charge on their records, which of course made employment really difficult. Um, And to this day, uh, you know, I don't think that this country has like made amends um, or, or, you know, done anything retroactively to expunge those records. Yeah. All right, before we go back to trivia, um, I do want to talk about an entirely different uh, thing in the spectrum of things that you cover, which is Rocky Road ice cream. Ooh, this is one of my favorite stories. Long story short, Rocky Road ice cream was definitely invented in Oakland in the 1920s. Um, you know, it was the Great Depression. At the time, ice cream came in three flavors. You had chocolate, you had vanilla, you had strawberry. It's hard to imagine now in our world of like, you know, matcha tea and 
coconut almond crunch or whatever it might be in your freezer. That's what's in mine. Um, but, you know, we, we kind of, you know, originally had these these three basic flavors. And somebody in Oakland, I'll get to the who's in a second, mm-hmm. but somebody in Oakland thought, hey, we've hit the depression. It's the rocky road of life. What if we put some stuff in the ice cream? So they put in some nuts. I love that you actually had to innovate that. Like someone had to be like, you know, we could put in ice cream, some stuff. Some stuff. We yeah. could put stuff in ice cream. Yeah. So put in some nuts, put in some marshmallows. Voila, you have Rocky Road. It ends up being, you know, the sensation and really starting this whole genre of like putting stuff in ice cream that, again, feels so familiar to us now. Now, what is at the center of this debate is who that person was who decided to put the stuff in the ice cream. On one hand, uh, or one side of the argument is it was William Dreyer, founder of Dreyer's Grand Ice Cream, started in Oakland, of course, now in supermarkets across the country, on the East Coast. It's Edie's. I don't know why, but (laughs) (laughs) it is. Um, And then on the other hand, it could have been this guy, Melvin Fenton, who you might recognize that last name because he is the grandson of the original owner of Fenton's Creamery. Historians aren't sure which story is right, but somebody came up with Rocky Road ice cream in Oakland, and it's delicious. Now it's everywhere and for all time. Yeah, it's amazing how many of the food stories in this book have something like that, where Mm -hmm. it's like, well, this bakery and that bakery might have also invented fortune cookies at this time. My time might have invented this place and this place. Yeah. Do you just think that's like... um, People that there's something in the air. I mean, it's it's true of things like electric lights and other kinds of like, you know, maybe more infrastructural innovations. Yeah, I think especially with food. I mean, almost all of our food stories, it feels like there's a little bit of controversy. It's a little murky. Mm-hmm. The origins, you know, there's a couple things happening happening simultaneously. I think when it comes to food, a lot of times, you know, there's kind of a bigger food trend movement happening. So it's possible that more than one people kind of, quote unquote, invent something around the same time because they're inspired by similar stuff. Um, and ultimately, I don't know how much it really matters who invents you know, Rocky Road ice cream or the Mai Tai. I'm just really thankful that I can enjoy both. Today. Yes. <laughs> um, by the way, Mai Tais invented at Trader Vic's now in Emeryville. Yep. Um, let's take another trivia call. Kristen in Woodside, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. All right, Kristen, do you think you're, you think you're ready? I hope so. I've lived here my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, Olivia. You should be well suited. Here we go. She's the mastermind behind the film Always Be My Maybe, which was set in San Francisco, where she was born and raised. Who is oh, she? Oh, man. Had you asked me anything besides film trivia, I might have gotten it, <laughs> but I don't actually have a clue. <laughs> that would be Ali, Ali Wong. Wong. Yes, Ali yes, Wong. Ali Wong. <sighs> but we'll keep going. We'll keep going. There's some others here I think you'll, I think you'll get. All right, I was no, pounding my steering wheel over International Orange. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had that question. Sorry, go ahead. All right, next one. These islands sitting off the coast of San Francisco are sometimes referred to as the Devil's Teeth Island by mariners. Those would be the Farallon Islands. Yes, indeed, Farallon. Oh, engineer Danny Bringer. Coming bringing in with the, the bell. Uh, yeah, that's right. Was that, was that a cable car bell, too? Sounds like yes. He's given a yes. Cable car so, charming, charming. <laughs> the creativity oh, like on display. <laughs> All right. Question number three. In the South Bay, it takes thousands of gallons of bay water and about three years to produce one pound of this substance. Uh, salt at the Cargill Salt Flat. Yes. Oh my God! Yes. 
good job, Kristen. Um, do you have a? Let me ask you this question: Do you have a, a go to piece of Bay Area trivia that you throw at people? Uh, I don't, but I actually have a question about something that I have yet to figure out what the origin of it is. Ooh! Ooh. All right, let's hear it. Um, on Old Lahonda Road. Um, west of Skyline, there is a rock face that has carved skulls on it. And if you're a bicyclist or motorcyclist, you probably have seen it. Um, but it's a road less traveled. But I've always wondered, since those have been there for many years, the origins of the multiple carved skulls. Ooh, I, I know Old Lahonda Road. I'm a road cyclist uh, and have tested my fitness going up that road. Um, and I, I have not noticed that rock face, but I'm going to have to check it out. We are putting it into the Bay Curious Kitty, right, yes. to, uh, for, for future investigation. Thank you so much, Kristen. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Um, you all don't just deal with sort of the human side of the Bay Area. You also deal with you know, kind of our, our natural setting in these ways that, that can be really beautiful. And you, one of the pieces of the book is to talk about our redwoods. Yeah, our redwoods. I mean, what's not to love? Um, I learned some things, though, as we were putting the redwood story together for this book, uh, including there are two different kinds of redwoods in California. Uh, there's the Sierra Redwood which is up, you know, in the mountainous regions, in the Sierra, uh, as it's named. Mm-hmm. And then we have the Coast Redwood, which we find all along the Pacific here, sort of in Northern California. The Sierra Redwood actually is only in a couple of groves, like I think a dozen groves or so in the Sierra. And those are, are definitely endangered by climate change, as are, unfortunately, our Coast Redwoods here on the coast. Uh, we're definitely seeing some shrinkage of the amount of, of you know, land that that is occupied by coast redwoods all over Northern California. And some of the fun differences between the two, uh, the coast redwoods uh, nearby, they are known for their height. And actually the tallest tree in the entire world is a coast redwood. It's up in Humboldt County. It has a name, Hyperion. It's 380 feet tall, which Alexis, imagine a football field in length. That it's it, you know it's longer than a football field mm-hmm. is 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 long or taller than a football field is long, which just kind of breaks my brain to mm-hmm. to even think about. Um, and then of course the the Sierra redwoods are are really known for their just overall mass. They're the tr- you know the fat trees <laughs> <laughs> up in the mountains. Um, and and one other fun thing that I didn't know, uh, you know. Redwoods at this point are, are mostly in California, a little bit in Oregon, but generally in this region of the world and nowhere else. However, uh, at other times on this planet, other times, you know, with, with different climate, redwoods have had a much larger range. Oh, that's so interesting. Also, here's my fun fact about redwoods. There is a third type of redwood, oh, yeah. the Don Redwood, only uh, native to central China, yes. I believe. However, if you'd like to see one, or actually a few of them, you can go to the um, Berkeley uh, Botanical Garden oh. um, there in Strawberry Canyon and take a look. They're really beautiful, actually. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fun fact. Um, let's uh, do another trivia call. Uh, mm-hmm. Massimo in San Jose. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's, it's great to be on. All right, Massimo. Here we go. Question number one. Commonly seen in the Bay Area, it's one of the slowest creatures on Earth, moving at a maximum speed of six and a half inches per minute. Should I give him a hint? One hint. One hint. They're yellow. <laughs> uh, uh. Uh. Oh. All right, I'll give it. Um, 
They happen to be the mascot of a beloved, close to Bay Area University, that is UC Santa Cruz, the banana slug. Yes, <laughs> banana slug. Oh Very fun to spot in the wild, I think, and easy because they're bright yellow. I'm humble. <laughs> <laughs> All right, question two. Betsy, Bailey, Buttercup, and Bambi are a sampling of the names from this animal herd found within San Francisco city limits. Herd is the um, giveaway here. Herd is definitely the giveaway. Uh, are they bison in Golden Gate Park? Yeah, correct. 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 Fun yeah. fact, bison are different from buffalo. Uh, they have different ranges uh, on this planet, and bison were once found in large, large numbers all across the West. Also a fun fact that I learned from the Bay Curious po- uh, book, they're all um, they're all. Women. Female. Yeah, yes. Female bison. Yeah. yeah. We once had some male bison in Golden Gate Park, and uh, we'll just Apparently, say... <laughs> they were wilding. Work out. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. yeah they, would, they, they escaped. They threatened some people. It was, <laughs> it was a bad time, so just, just ladies now. Uh, okay, number three. The largest earthquakes to hit the Bay Area came in 1906 and 1989. I should say, in, in modern history. We don't know about the entire history of, of this planet. Uh, but they originated along which fault? San Andreas. Correct. Correct. How did he do? Two for three. Kind of, I thought, you know, missed the the banana slug, but you did great. Stay on the line. We will get you a book. Um, We've never played trivia on this show, Olivia, and I love it. Um, Thank you for joining us, Massimo. Sure. Thank you. Um, We're talking about the publication of the Bay Curious book, Bay Curious, exploring the hidden true stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. We have Olivia Allen Price, host of KQED's Bay Curious, the podcast that spawned the media (laughs) entity that spawned the book. And we're also playing some trivia with you all. I think we're going to go into the break to Green Day. You like Mm, Green Day, Olivia? Love Green Day. Local band. Local band. That's (laughs) right. Um, I'm Alexis Madrigal. If you want to call in, we are taking um, trivia calls. The number is 866-733-6786. If you have things you'd like to ask Olivia about, you can also send your comments, questions to forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. And we'll get to some of your uh, interesting fun facts that some of you have been writing in. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We have a KQED crossover day today. We are here with Olivia Allen Price, host of KQED's Bay Curious, which, if you don't know, is a podcast that investigates questions asked by local residents about things both profound and peculiar that make the Bay Area unique. We're celebrating the publication of the Bay Curious book, which is Bay Curious, exploring the hidden true stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. There are 49 stories in the book, as well as a variety of sidebars. You can learn about Mai Tais and Redwoods and all kinds of things. A couple of uh, comments to read. Bill writes, uh, There was a large grounded ship in the Free Harbor by the Berkeley Marina that I believe had a community living on it named the Rainbow People, though I can find reference to the Rainbow People that also had an encampment on the shore. I haven't found any reference to the ship. I vaguely remember it being one of the victory ships with a rainbow. We checked in earlier. This is going also into the kitty as one of those things that is very interesting, but we don't have an answer for you right away. And here's another one of those. Uh, I love this. Amy writes, my Basque grandmother, 96 years old, went to college at Lone Mountain and would always talk about how North Beach was home to a community of Basque people. She would go there to connect with people who spoke her language. I would love to learn more about the Basque community in North Beach and about the history of the Basque hotels. As would I, Olivia Allen Price, I too would like to know uh, more about that as well. Um, Another listener, Chris, writes in to say, I just wanted to say how much I love Bay Curious and especially this segment. Being a second generation kid, I visited both sets of grandparents in Chinatown and the sunset nearly every weekend of my childhood. And learning so much about the Bay Area's quirks is not only interesting, but helps me understand my identity as a Bay Area native. That so is, nice. That is exactly what we want to hear. Right? That is That's exactly the feeling you want to leave people to do, with. So it, I'm so thankful to hear that. Thank um, you. One of the great stories in this book um, is about the architecture of Chinatown, which is sort of, you know, kind of like Rhode Island, neither a road nor an island. You know, it's like this is not Chinese architecture, right? Um, tell us the story about how it came to be what it is. I'd love to. Yeah. So if you would have come to San Francisco's Chinatown before the 1906 earthquake, it would have looked a lot different from how it looks today. Everything was pretty modest, pretty functional, very well built, but not at all flashy, not particularly colorful, um, you know, pretty, pretty basic. And that was in part because the earliest inhabitants of Chinatown were Chinese merchants, carpenters, builders, masons, people who could build stuff, but they didn't have architects who were there to you know, design stuff and excite the eye and, and do all sorts of things like that. So the, the buildings were great, but they were very plain. Now, after the 1906 earthquake, of course, everything you know in, in many neighborhoods is, is destroyed, and that includes San Francisco's Chinatown. And the city was starting to work to rebuild their neighborhoods. And the Board of Supervisors had hatched a plan to actually displace the Chinese population away from Chinatown. That land had become valuable. It was really close to the center of the city. You know, they they wanted that for, for different things. They wanted to push, you know, Chinese people to a different part of the city, a further away part of the city. 
The Chinese leaders in in Chinatown at the time caught wind of this, and they were very, very smart because what they did was they acted, first off, very quickly to rebuild, Mm -hmm. to re-sign leases with their landlords, to, you know, Mm -hmm. get building on on property if they owned it, and, and go ahead and start rebuilding Chinatown as quickly as possible. And they did something ingenious, and that was, hey, let's try to appeal to this Western idea of what Chinese architecture is by creating sort of like a fantasy land in Chinatown. So they got that's that's where you see a lot of this architecture today in Chinatown that isn't necessarily even a reflection of what you would find in China. Some of the ways that the the buildings are designed, like they might use, you know, motifs that that Mm. are traditional Mm -hmm. to China, but in a way that's like a little bit different. They painted everything, you know, these really vibrant colors and Westerners just ate it up. And they they knew that by doing this, it was a way to play defense in Mm. a way to keep their community, you know, rooted where it was. And it's it's been neat to see it work out so well. They're still there today. Yeah, I mean, the the sources in that story in the book also have just such incredible things to say about the like really the specific knowledges that were deployed and how how well they seem to know the people around them um, so that that would actually work out. Um, My favorite quote about our Chinatown is that it's neither east nor west, but 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 decidedly San Francisco. Yeah, that's the so, line. Yeah. That's so good. Um, you know, one listener uh, writes in to note, just to note uh, that while there has been no exoneration yet for the Port Chicago sailors, it's not for lack of trying. Our East Bay yes. Congressman Mark Desalnier, Desalnier continues to introduce bills for exoneration, which unfortunately um, haven't gotten through both houses. So, yes, there. that is correct. People uh, are trying. Hopefully... Yes. Hopefully something goes through. Um, We've got another person who'd like to play trivia. D in Concord. Welcome. Thank you for having me. All right. Hi, D. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. All right. George Whitney was the manager of Playland, a beloved amusement park at Ocean Beach in the early 20th century. What other quintessential San Francisco treat did Whitney invent in 1928? Okay, have been the ice cream sandwich. Oh, we'll um, give it to you. I, I think that's count. The it's that counts. That counts. It yes. The it's it ice cream sandwich. Yes, it's it. Yes. yes. Born from born from Playland out, out in Ocean Beach. Um, all right, this is one I, I I hope I hope you know. I, I'm convinced people will know this one, but uh, the producers here are not sure. <laughs> what Bay Area city has the motto "Climate Best by Government Test"? Could it be Alameda? Ooh, Ooh, no, no. That would be Redwood City, uh, which, yeah, people on the peninsula, I think, would know. It's uh, it, it's plastered all over town. Do you know what this government <laughs> test was? <laughs> I do. Uh, Rachel Myro did a story for Bay Curious about this motto because it is it is plastered all over town. So people have asked, what is the government test? It's actually pretty shaky science, to be entirely <laughs> honest. Uh, I can't remember the, the, the era, but I want to say it was like the 1920s. There was a guy who was basically measuring the temperature in Redwood City every day and you know determined that it was one of the most ideal places on the planet. Uh, the federal government somehow caught wind of his survey, picked it up, and and kind of carried it forward. And somehow we ended up with this with this motto. It's all in the story. I yes. won't get into the details, <laughs> but uh, but that's that's a fun story of ours. Um, all right, D. Here's your third question. What comfy space saving furniture invention was designed in a San Francisco studio apartment? 
Um, is it the futon? Very close, but the fundamentally bed. different. The Murphy, the Murphy bed. Murphy bed. Ah, <laughs> uh, you got a you got a tough set, D. I will I will tell you that. I feel like you got a tough set. Thank you so much for uh, for calling and playing though. Thank you so much. Um, Olivia, I want to talk about another myth bust mm. that you do in the book, kind of similar to the climate bust by government test, which is about Mount Diablo and how far you can mm. see from it, right? This claim got rolling that it was, you could see further, more land than anywhere else aside from the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, even though it's only like 4,000 feet tall or 3,800 Yeah, feet. yeah. I mean, if you've been up to the top of Mount Diablo, you can kind of see how you could make uh, that claim. But yes, it was a widely circulated claim, actually still is in circulation to some degree today, yes. that from the top of Mount Diablo, you can see more land on Earth than anywhere else on Earth. It, it's called a view shed is, is what the you know scientific uh-huh. term for, for that is, had the largest view shed uh, on the planet. You know, eventually someone did some math and uh, determined that no, in fact, uh, Mount Diablo does not have the largest view shed on Earth. I think it's Kilimanjaro, but I I would need to double check our story about that, actually. (laughs) Um, But what is pretty fun is that you can go to the top of Mount Diablo and see sometimes as far as like Half Dome in Yosemite. Um, It is still a spectacular view, if not the largest on Earth. Fair enough. It is an amazing view. Totally worth doing, even if it's not that, you know, (laughs) world historical in that way. Um, A couple other, um, uh, well, fun comment here. Mike writes in to say, I recently found out that the average depth of San Francisco Bay is only 12 to 36 inches between Hayward and San Mateo to San Jose. That seems so shallow. Does this mean one can walk in the bay there? Ooh, good question. I I, mean, muddily, grossly. (laughs) I mean, I will say we get a lot of questions about why there's not more ferry service around the southern part of the Bay Area, and that is why. It is just too shallow to run a ferry through there. Yeah. Um, Let's get uh, another trivia caller. Let's get um, David in Fremont. Welcome. We'll play fast before the pledge break. All right. Ready for a lightning round? All right. What soda company was the first to be sold in cans? You there, David? Yeah, I'm here. Uh, Shasta? Correct. Shasta, nailed well it. Well done. All right. They did it in 1953. Uh, number two, what bookstore in the Bay Area was home to the literary luminaries known as the Beats? Oh, I love this one. Uh, that would be City Lights. City Lights, there that's right. All right, let's see if you get three for three. <laughs> this Bay Area city is known as the garlic capital of the world. Thank you for giving me three easy questions. Uh, this would be Gilroy. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent work, David. You went three for three. Um, stay on the line, of course. Um, I um, I love that Gilroy is the garlic capital of the world. Oh, yeah. We we also are known for some other um, fruits and vegetables, though, too, right? There's like the Delta asparagus. Are there any other favorites that you have? Ooh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, or foods in general from the... Foods in general. I mean, I really come back a lot to our cocktails. I'm, mm. I'm a lover of cocktails. Um, so I love that the martini uh, has roots here in the Bay Area. Another one that it's like, was it here? Was it here? We're not sure, but likely in the Bay Area. Uh, we talk about the Irish coffee, of course, and how that kind of made its way to America. Right, that was sort of like invented in Ireland, but we sort of 
popularized it. Popularized Yes, <laughs> yes. Right. I had one this last weekend at the Buena Vista Cafe with my dad who was visiting, and they are fantastic as ever. Uh, the Mai Tai right. is, of course, delicious. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I love talking about our cocktails. Yeah, I did not know that the martini was invented here. Yeah, it's it's my dad's go-to to drink when I told him he was he was floored. Yes. Um, <laughs> we have been talking about the publication of the Bay Curious book, Bay Curious, exploring the hidden true stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. We are joined by Olivia Allen Price, who is the host of KQED's Bay Curious, one of the fantastic podcast producers here at the station. Just want to let you know, we're doing uh, a book talk at Mrs. Dalloway's bookstore in Berkeley at 7 p.m. tonight, event free, but you should register. This is fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. I want to talk a little bit about Bay Area language, Olivia. Mm. Um, how about the origins of Hella? I mean, yeah. this is, you know, used, used widely now. Yeah, so Hella started among black youth in, in Oakland and then, of course, has been picked up over the years and appropriated and used by you know, everyone. And today it's probably one of the biggest linguistic exports that we have out of California uh, is, is Hella. And that's one thing that we found as we were almost every time we look into language and slang, so much of it originates in, in black culture and then, you know, yeah, gets picked up or appropriated by, by others. It's also it's like surprisingly old, though, right? I mean, I think the story indicates that you know it's in the 1970s, like when this when that particular word started to take off. Yeah, yeah, it, it's quite old. Uh, the the sources that we talked to first remember hearing it uh, while they were playing Pop Warner football, <laughs> uh, which I, I find you know just super charming. Um, some punk bands were incorporating it into their songs early on, and there was actually for a while a debate about whether the the term was really hella or hell of. And a linguist actually did like a deep study on this word and determined that he thinks it has always been hella because the way that you would say something is hella good is different from you saying like it was a hell of a good doesn't make sense right um so yeah the the hell of a people kind of went by the wayside and and hella rose as as you know the the slang word of choice the other um linguistic uh battle uh, that you document in the book is over whether to call san francisco frisco Absolutely. We get heat for this uh, routinely. We still get heat for this. And it's actually probably the only uh, thing that we take a stance on in the book. For the most part, we're kind of just trying to deliver the facts. But we believe that Frisco should not be as frowned upon as as some people believe it is. The the history or the you know the word Frisco has a long history in in San Francisco. It's been used, you know, really since the ports were strong here back you know mm-hmm. early 1900s, and it was uh, you know has been has lived on again in in various communities. It's been a strong word throughout time. Herb Kane with the San Francisco Chronicle kind of went on a tirade against Frisco. He kind of thought it was, you know, kind of gross sounding. It, it didn't live up to this image he had. And worse, he said it was for tourists, right? He said it was for tourists. He, it didn't live up to this image he had of San Francisco as a classy, you know, metropolitan, more mm-hmm. European style city. He thought Frisco kind of sounded trashy. And he wrote about it. And a lot of people listened. And 
that belief has kind of stuck around, even though Herb Cain himself, even, you know, in his later years, kind of recanted. He did. He <laughs> he went back and said, you know, actually a lot of, he, I think he called them the old rubes on the waterfront uh, were using the word Frisco. Oh, so, you know, it's, it's never left a lot of communities here in the Bay Area. I think, um, you know, I, I would like to see a world in which people can kind of call the city what yeah. they would like. Um, get this. William in Orinda has a trivia question. I mean, technically for us, but it's really for you because you're oh. going to be the one who gets oh, it. Oh, my. All right, William, we're ready. We're ready, William. Okay, what? <clears throat> there's a tree that's common in the Bay Area. Uh, one of its names is um, a, uh, uh, the name of a national tree in Europe. Ooh. National a national tree. tree in Europe. So uh, the what tree is a national, national tree. The national, the national tree of a European country. Ours is ours. The name is is um, is is the was brought to uh, that country from uh, brought here from that country because the trees are similar. Ooh, but it's so it's not a native tree, not a native tree, but a common yeah. tree. No, it's a native. It's native here. It was named after a similar tree. Oh, in this country. oh, oh. Okay, okay. All right. Okay. I I'm gonna go. Um, uh, mm. Bay laurel. Ooh. Nope. That's a good one. <laughs> Honestly, Danny's Danny Danny Bringer, the engineer, has definitely been waiting to use the wrong uh, button on somebody. I'm gonna guess manzanita. Nope. Oh, oh what is it, William? <laughs> what is it? Uh, it's our coast live oak, which the Spanish name is Encina. Oh. It's very similar. It's very similar to the Encina. It's got it's an evergreen with a curly, prickly leaf in uh, Spain. <clears throat> um, I'm not sure the exact species. I think it's um, Quercus ilex. They're both the Quercus. Uh, it's called also called holly oak or home oak. Uh, oh, but man. the reason it's the national tree of Spain is that the Pigs that make the Spanish pork eat its acorns. (laughs) Uh Oh, I love that. William, well, thank you um, so much. You stumped us. Yeah, you got us. Good job. Well done. Good job. Every every time I see an NC, I think, oh, wow. And um, uh, it's a connection I think people want to know. Yeah. Yeah, It would make me hungry for ham. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, William. We have been talking about the publication of the Bay Curious book. The full title is Bay Curious, Exploring the Hidden True Stories of the San Francisco Bay Area. Congratulations, Olivia. Thank you. I'm really happy for you. It's a beautiful book. Olivia Allen Price is the host of KQED's Bay Curious. She's joined us. If you don't know the podcast, it investigates the questions asked by local residents about things both profound and peculiar. Olivia and I will be back talking about the book, slinging more trivia, having more fun this evening at Mrs. Dalway's Bookstore in Berkeley at 7 p.m. Events free. Register ahead of time. We're going out to everyday people by Sly and the Family Stone. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Nina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.